Um, wow, this is weird. It's weird being back and doing this. Um, but you know, the more I do it, the more the more comfortable I am. Got to record an intro for this thing. It's the best of 2022 out of the six or seven episodes that I put out. I feel that the clips from these are relevant and kind of encapsulate the energy and the spirit of the guest that I was uh, hosting on that show. Uh, it's really fun to do a podcast, and but there's just a lot of moving parts. And when you're the only one doing it and you're doing everything, uh, finding the guests, scheduling interviews, recording interviews, connecting with that guest first and foremost, uh, kind of building a rapport because interviews can be pretty awkward if you don't have a rapport built. I learned that from personal training. Um, down to editing, posting and marketing and repurposing clips and everything. Like it took a lot. It took a lot. And I'm super grateful to have put 50 plus episodes out on the show sets and reps over the next couple months i am hoping to get to a point where i can commit to one episode a month um one interview based show a month as well as going through a soft rebranding of what the show really is um i'm gonna keep the general energy the general ideas and hopefully get to talk to some of the same kinds of people but just create a more practical sense or or have the sh have the show have a more practical feel um definitely a different name too and it's gonna it's gonna kind of encapsulate a part of my larger brand so i'm gonna leave it at that for now Hopefully you've been able to check back through some of my other episodes. There's a lot of really interesting people with a lot of important messages to say from their own experiences, things that they've been through on various walks of life about their own successes, their own failures. I hope you enjoy this compilation from 2022 even though there weren't many episodes there was still some important ones and i know it's january 15th already as of this recording but it doesn't matter you know yesterday was my birthday so i'm feeling pretty good uh in terms of what I can do. Um, I was sick for a couple of days and just not feeling well. So this episode didn't come out when I wanted it to, but I'm feeling a lot better. Happy to say um, I had a great birthday with my girlfriend. We've been together now. Um in two days, it'll be six months on the 17th. Uh, I'm stoked about that. She has a dog, uh, American Staffordshire Terrier named Ruger. 
if you don't know american staffordshire terrier is uh the one of the breeds that falls under the pit bull breed category um and you know that that name doesn't just account for one of those dogs my instagram feed is now just full of pit bulls and i love it (laughs) but uh without anything else i want to just kind of let you get into this episode let you enjoy some of my favorites and in my opinion the better parts of the content that i put out in 2022 thank you very much and i hope you have a excellent new year Core is more than just your six pack. It's more than just your rectus abdominis, right? You got your pelvic floor, you got your diaphragm, internal, external obliques. You have your transverse abdominis. You have your actual six pack, your rectus abdominis, and you have your uh, uh, erector spinae, your quadratus lumborum, the the QL. You have the multifidi muscles. All of these things are contributing to what people refer to as the core. I mean, if one of those is not working, it's gonna create some problems for its neighbors. I think that is well Mm -hmm. established now, especially with your background and your education, you know that, you know, anytime you have a problem somewhere, you're gonna have to start to look to the neighbors for things that are either overactive, underactive, or or something to that effect, right? Um, If you wanna go a step further, you know, it could be, uh, I think it was what Thomas Hanna that coined the term sensory motor amnesia, right? When, when you completely have disconnected a muscle from your neural network and it's just like, just sitting there without any power going to it, you know? And then this is, I, I, in the beginning, I remember it being used a lot for your transverse abdominals, people that had that this like, kind of like, you know, they work out, they eat well and all that, but they had a little bit of a bubble gut and it's like, what's mm. going on there? And the transverse abdominus oftentimes was the culprit for that. And, and it, that's, that sensory motor amnesia was, was something that got used a lot for that, but it happens with a lot of other muscles. And, you know, underactive muscles, you know, are usually what's going to cause problems for someone. And so if you have pain somewhere, it's very easy to point the finger to that area specifically, oh, well, it's this. But as we know, I think it's, again, it's, I think it's well established that, you know, it, he who treats the, the side of pain it's usually going to end up in the wrong spot, right? You got to look at the surrounding area and what could be the causes for this particular area, you know, referring that pain or specifically presenting that pain, but it's usually something else, you know, obviously, you know, if I chop your arm off, you're going to feel it there. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, there are of course always um, exceptions to the rule, but most often, right? Back pain, you know, your your, uh, hamstrings, you know, lack mobility or flexibility. Um, you could have very weak, underactive abdominal musculature, you know, mm. and it, the list goes on, right? You're helping a lot of people continue to navigate this world, um, their environment uh, in the best way possible, because it's always changing. It's unpredictable. And I just think of, you know, some of my clients that I help out now and uh, when they begin working with me, sometimes they have pain in various areas and I include core training specifically for people that ask for it but in general it's just a great thing to have and if we can continue to educate have these conversations explain to them how it's going to benefit them 
you know, that's awesome. But then when they start seeing the results in their own lives, they don't have back pain anymore. Um, when they lift, they, they have that strong girdle that supports them when they do, when they do their other activities. So certainly if we spend purposeful time training this in the gym, um, it's, it's just going to create a ripple effect into the rest of their lives. It's not just the fitness part because that's important. And obviously it's important for me, but you have, we want people to meditate. We want people to stretch. We want people to be in nature, to go out for walks, to overall have a healthier and more active lifestyle. Like it's not just about slinging kettlebells. That's part of it. And it's an important part of it. And if you must only do one thing, then I don't even know that that would be the one thing that I would recommend. But, you know, oftentimes because of the way that we, deliver our classes people find that that then we walk out they feel a little bit better than they walked in sometimes a lot better because it has this quality of it is the, the focus that i try to encourage in my students allows them to disconnect from what's happening out there and be fully present which has a compound effect on the way that they feel not just physically but spiritually and mentally when you're able to just take a breath and be fully present focus on what you're doing, however mundane it may seem, that can really help the person in many other areas of their life. It's not just physical. So this is the way that we have created the culture at Iron Core. In fact, every class begins with us saying, okay, guys, let's get into our neutral stance, which is your feet parallel, hips level, lengthen spine, just take a moment to do a little shake off and, and kind of go within and identify how your body feels just get this sense of, of of self you know physical self like what what feels good what feels bad where am i bringing that awareness to the posture alone at the beginning of every class sets you up for success throughout the class and if you can keep that up through the class then by the time you walk out as i said you're going to feel better and now you go to work and you feel a little better maybe instead of going to that long lunch and having the drink you go to the park take your shoes off and walk around the grass for a little bit get some sun on you or something like that so it's this compound effect of trying to change behavior to encourage good behaviors so that it can become part of your daily life. We know that the, the benefits of breathing, getting out, going out for walks, we know that those can be highly beneficial, but it's, it's sad that people don't often like think to, to do that at first, you know? So what's the best way to help these people include, include these kinds of practices in their overall life and outside of just working out? What I have found is that oftentimes people like you and I, we like this stuff. We are going to get that book. We're going to read it. We're going to listen to the podcast with some guy that we follow. And we think that, you know, they're just brilliant training methods, something like that. We're going to do that. The majority of our clients won't do that. <laughs> they're too busy. They don't know what to look for, or maybe they're a little misguided. They're looking at the wrong stuff or whatever. So what, what I think would be valuable for us as coaches to give the clients is a little insight into how it feels. Give them an experience, right? So for example, let's say I have somebody that comes in and I try to tell them, hey, man, like um, I've noticed a little bit of, um, you know, you have a lot of trouble breathing through the workout. So what I wanted to do was get you on a, a set schedule of, you know, doing some breathing to see if we can help with you breathing a little bit better through your workouts and you're going to feel a lot better. And they're like, oh, no, I don't want to waste my time because that's not hardcore, right? That's not, 
That's not, they're not sweating. They're not feeling the effort, right? It's not like a kick-ass session to do some breath work at the beginning of a session, to lie down on the ground, place a band around your abdomen, snugly pull it in, and then breathe against that band for a good four to five minutes, come up, do some range of motion testing, and then go into your workout and see if that improved your performance. Did it improve your strength? Did you feel more energetic or more alert or ability to focus better? Whatever it is, let's, let's figure that out. If you can give them that experience, would anyone say no to any of those things? <laughs> you know, like, I, I yeah. wonder, right? Would, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to feel better throughout my session. Like, of course, you're going to want to feel better. Most people mm. would, right? I personally want, if there's anything that I can do to feel stronger, more coordinated, better endurance, more focus, I'm going to do it. Not only that, there's things that I do within my session that are not considered to be like your traditional conventional working out stuff that enhance my session, like visual drills and vestibular drills and proprioceptive drills and nerve glides or flossing, uh, uh, nerve, nerve flossing sequences and things like that, tensioning sequences, all that stuff. Uh, muscular contractile mapping sequences to allow me to perform better depending on what I'm doing. Like all these things are super esoteric and way out there, but if you can incorporate them into the session in a friendly way and give them the experience and, and have them be a successful experience where they feel like, wow, that feels awesome. They're going to be open to doing more. And I think that's the key. You can show it down their throat. You have to show them in a way that they can appreciate themselves. Eye movement, as you know, is crucial to posture. And there are some basic things that your eyes can do for you. So if you look up, your posture immediately tries to extend a little bit. And when you look down, you are encouraging flexion in your body. This is just intrinsic um, reflexes that we have to facilitate, to make it easier for our system to run on auto. So we don't have to think about these things, right? Very often, I have to give them some kind of stabilization for their visual field. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is that the pain usually goes away. All of a sudden, their back doesn't hurt. You're just like, I want you to look at this when you're coming down. I want you to look at that when you're coming up. And then they do that. Things just get a little bit quieter in the nervous system, let's just say. And then the nervous system can redirect all that energy that it had jumping around with the eyes everywhere to the movement itself. Calms you down. It brings you down to a place that it makes it more pleasurable to perform the movement. And the nervous system needs to feel safe in order to perform well. If it doesn't, then it's going to try to prevent you from doing that. And that often presents itself as pain. That's why that's so important. So simple visual stabilization. It has, it has a profound effect on the way people perceive the experience of doing a deadlift or a swing if they're coming in with some kind of precondition where they're like, hey, my back always hurts. My physical therapist told me that I need to strengthen my core. Oftentimes it's not even that. Their core is adequately strong for the activity, but their visual is really just crazy. It's just erratic. And it's causing the nervous system to perceive that activity as a threat. And it won't allow them to perform it in a way that doesn't bother them. Something else that you said that was very valuable too is like, it almost sounds like, you have to be flexible to, to change or, um, you know, not, not feel like everything has to be planned out because it will happen. Um, 
it's just going to take time. And if funds is the biggest limiting factor, then the best thing would be to do probably is make more money, like figure out how to yeah. increase your income streams. And there's plenty of ways to do that in our modern world. So Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Great insight I, there. I think it really puts to the test all of your skill set, right? Like it's, yeah. there's a business component there that you got to have a business acumen and operationally, you know, if you, if you're a novice trainer and you don't know how to work with the equipment that you have, that can be very challenging, right? Like if I don't have this piece of equipment, I can't do these things. But when you're experienced, you, you can really address different things, right? Like mm -hmm. have the, the knowledge and the creativity to put together things when the equipment is not there, right? Like if you don't have a big like a cable machine and what do you do? Well, there's a lot of solutions for that, you know, with bands and things like that and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it really will test your, the totality of your skill set as a business owner when, when, you know, you don't have everything that, that you want in your thing. But like you said, it's, it's possible and it's a good challenge. I think it really helps you grow and, if you ever had to counsel someone or be a mentor to a young person and they're going to something similar, there's no better t-shirt than that experience in order to be able to pass that on and tell them exactly how you did it. And they can avo avoid all the pitfalls if there are any um, in, in going through that process. I think that's really valuable too. Do you notice whether or not there's a big difference between body weight and then, you know, using a kettlebell or a barbell, I guess, strictly in, in like the time it takes and the amount of practice you need. Yeah. Does, does that so make sense? <laughs> it, it does. It does. I'm following you. I'm following you. Don't worry. I'm fully present, Greg. I'm fully present. Okay. So, Good, me too. so, so that, that depends on the person a little bit. I'm going to pre preface that with the, the idea that, you know, every person is going to be a little bit different, but generally speaking, and this may shock you, <laughs> The body weight skill is a little bit harder for people. And I have a theory why. <laughs> Let's hear it. So if you, if you tell someone to grab a, a relatively light dumbbell or not dumbbell, kettlebell, mm -hmm. and you ask, you tell, you d demonstrate a, a deadlift with a, with a kettlebell, and then you ask them to perform it. Let's say worst case scenario, maybe they have a little bit of a rounded back, but if it's a light kettlebell, it's not going to kill them. You know, they might mm -hmm. feel a little bit, you know, but it's fairly innocuous, right? They're not going to blow a disc, you know, doing a 16 kilo deadlift incorrectly. But what happens is you immediately can go like, Hey man, you can either tell them like strain out your back or do this, whatever your cue of choice is. It's a pretty easy fix, right? When they do it correctly, the way that the, the, the tool itself is loading their body, it's going to activate this kind of reflexive stability that people kind of like all of a sudden get better at. This is one of the reasons why swinging a heavier kettlebell, especially as a beginner, it's oftentimes easier than swinging a light kettlebell because the load is encouraging the right type of posture and muscular, muscular activation in your body. Okay. So I just saw, saw this happen the other day in class, somebody, you know, they have been there for a few weeks and they were kind of ready for the next step. And I brought over a 24 kilo and they were like, really? You want me to do that? And I said, yes, just deadlift it. Just do your best. Just try to apply what you've learned. And, you know, they, they did the setup. I could see them, you know, kind of like visualizing themselves doing the exercise. They go down, they come up. It was flawless. Mm. 
And everyone noticed it. All the other students noticed it too. And they kind of smile because they've seen this trick before. You know, they've gone through that process. You know, it's like, why do you think that is? And it's like, well, the load of that kettlebell really is calling for your back musculature, your glutes, your um, erectors and all that to really activate and perform this in a manner that makes you look super flawless with that spinal dynamics that we want, okay? External load really helps, goes a long ways into helping people get into the right posture. Mm. As long as it's adequate and there's been some level of instruction, education. Yeah. Body weight, you have to drive that yourself. There's no external load to cue you that you have to do this, this, or that. So if you were to put somebody in a prone position and ask them to extend their hands completely like overhead, right? So it's almost like they're doing this fully standing up, but they're on a prone position with their belly on the ground. And then you tell them to plank from there, from that extended position, right? Now that could be a very bad injury for someone because there's no external load to cue them on what they need to do with their core their middle, their shoulders, their hips, and everything else that everything is full body, brother. I hate to break it to you, but nothing is so very few things are isolated. Everything is, is, is integrated, right? Yeah. So if you don't know how to coordinate that entire effort with your body, you're going to feel it in your back. And it's probably going to be something that you feel for a few days. And so the external load of some of these tools immediately makes you re, makes your body have this reflexive stability that it needs, where when you're dealing with body weight, that doesn't necessarily happen. And so that is a harder thing to teach, to be able to perform that neural drive and get the right things tight and the right things loose. That's a lot harder when there's nothing from the outside cueing on what to do. When you go to a fitness professional that seem, is seemingly perfect, let's say this person is just has the perfect physique. They've never had an injury. Athleticism, you know, they're equivalent of the Michael Jordan of the fitness industry. There are some of those out there. It's like, how are they going to teach you anything? You know, they don't even teach you from the beginner's mind. They, they, um, you know, they, they have one way of doing something. Well, when you're somebody that's struggled for, for your whole life to try to, you know, get around a certain barriers that are put in your path, you, have, you end up developing like a million ways of how to describe something because you understand what it feels like to be in a body that has barriers or to be in a mindset maybe that has barriers. So I, I definitely think that all of those things were a gift. And then I'm sure you can resonate with quite, quite recently, you know, COVID was a big struggle for me. Um, I had a thriving studio in my, in my, um, in my state uh, we had a group fitness program. I had uh, a lot of employees and I can remember on March the 19th when we were told by our governor that we had to close our business. And I really thought to myself, oh, I'll, be, I'll be back in a week. And a lot, a lot of the people that were in my facility said the same thing. And um, that was history. My group fitness program is like gone now. Like I, I ended up after we opened that June uh, you know, I started classes again and I was getting text messages left and right from my members saying they were too afraid to come back. Please keep mm. my membership on hold. And here I was paying, you know, $4,000 a month in rent at a place that I, half of it wasn't even being able to be used. And I really thought for a time that I was, that my career was over, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. 
you know, the MAT and the personal training has always been very successful for me, but what it did was it forced me to open up an, a new facility, I actually closed that whole place. I, I changed the whole format of my business. I developed an app. I started having online classes and online coaching programs. And now fast forward to 2022. Um, I, this is a huge part of my business. I have over 300 videos now on my fitness integrated science TV app. My teacher training, I just started a brand new teacher training and I've been able to incorporate a lot of these online, online services and my app into the training. And um, it's actually, I'm actually happier now than I was when I had this big business and I was doing classes in person. And I'm still doing some classes. I've got some private uh, clients that I'm working with, but I would say my MAT business, my personal training business, and this new online platform has bigger than it's ever been. So I don't know, sometimes when we think that we're being set back, it's actually a set up that we're getting ready to do something even mm. greater than we thought possible. You know, I look over to the weight room and I don't know if you know this guy's name's Todd Durkin. Mm -hmm. um, Todd Durkin in the industry, in the fitness industry, he's kind of a rock star. Um, and he's someone that gets asked to do a lot of keynotes. He's written books. He's got programs. He's, you know, a million followers on his, on his uh, social media and he's inspired a lot of people and he's in there pumping iron. And what first said to me was, you know, oh, wow, he's in here just working out by himself. And he was working out pretty hard. And so he and I never really had the opportunity to talk. And um, I just walked over to the guy and I'm like, hey, you know, how are you doing? And I knew that he was in the middle of writing a book. And I just asked him, I said, gosh, Todd, I know how much I have going on. How do you do it? And one thing that he said to me that always resonated me, he said, you know what? I just take things one step at a time. I focus on the most important project and I focus on that. And I try not to put everything else in the, in the way of it. I just get done with one thing and then I move on to the next thing. And that, that conversation has helped me throughout the years more, more than, more than anything. And then of course my dad's famous saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I think, I think that uh, when you start on anything um, you, you can't look at everything that you want to accomplish all at the same time, you, you, you know, having a business today post COVID is going to involve in-person training. It's going to involve this whole online thing that all of us are learning on the fly. It's going to involve marketing. It's going to involve social media, which is another huge ball of wax. And then it's also involving just you learning about your industry continuing to stay on top of your own education. And it can be overwhelming. I know there's been times that I just had to go to sleep because I was so overwhelmed. I was like, oh my mm. God, I'm just exhausted. You know, I just, I just mm. fall and then I have to go work out or go to sleep or whatever just to clear my head. But for me, um, stress naps as I can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just getting enough rest, that's huge, which is really tough for me because I'm a huge night owl and I've been known to work till two in the morning sometimes on stuff, getting enough rest, getting enough time, you know, giving yourself enough time to take care of your own needs. Like you've got to make time to work out. You've got to make time to eat right. You know, if you start letting that stuff go, it's like the stress just multiplies and really just doing a little bit each day on every aspect of your business. Don't, don't stop moving. And, and I, and it's kind of like exercise. You know, we tell clients, if you're going to skip a day, that's cool. Even if you skip two days every so often, that's fine. But when you start skipping more than two days of not working, you start going backwards. So I think for me, it's just about 
trying to tackle things, everything, a little bit each day. There's going to be some days that I focus on one thing a lot more than the others. You know, maybe I have a deadline in front of me, so I have to really focus on getting this thing done. But just every single day, working on every aspect of your business as much as you can, think about what happens after a week of that, or two weeks, or a month, or six months, or a year, how much further along that you are. But when you look at all the stuff that you've got going on and you do nothing, kind of like with fitness, it's really hard to get back up. For fitness itself, if you're going to be involved in this field, if you want clients to trust you, if you truly want to help people, you're, you're always a student, you know? Um, I know like you had told me that you're in, you, you, you've been studying hard. You just came off of finals for your school. And I found that to be so inspiring that not only are you out there working with people, you are in a formal setting and you're learning about a field, of, a, a field that is just so very important, working with occupational therapy and working with physical therapy and trying to help people to manage their injuries and manage, you know, taking care of themselves on the, on the long term. Um, you know, when I was younger, when I very first started teaching and I, I did start teaching at age 16, which is crazy. Mm. I think back, I think back about what I knew back then. And when I started out, you know, of course, back and back then, nobody, as far as if you were a woman, you're not out in the weight room. Everyone just did cardio. That was what fitness was. Um, you know, there was, there were the big gym guys out in the gym that were pumping iron that kind of looked weird to you. And the women were always either on the cardiovascular equipment or they were taking aerobics. And for a long time, that's what fitness meant to me. Yeah. But then, you know, I started noticing my body breaking down at a very young age. And there's something that happened to me, you know, not only with, you know, dealing with the, the eating disorder as a teenager, but also noticing as a young adult, having my body start to break down. Something that really started making sense to me was if my body is already breaking down at this age, what am I going to be like when I'm 50? You know, and I don't want to give this up. And it was, it was just a really big realization to me. And I started thinking to myself, what am I doing? What, like, what am I teaching? If my body is breaking down, what are these people going to be like learning underneath me? And what's interesting is like over the years, I, you know, I was actually really known in my 20s for having a lot of insane choreography. What I started noticing throughout the years of me having a business and me working in the field, more and more people started coming to me, not for weight loss, but for injuries. And, it, and it's like, I started looking at the people walking into my business and they became, they became, and it probably because I was getting older too, people that were coming in were over 40. Mm. They were dealing with muscle loss. They were dealing with injuries that they had when they were younger. And now they're rearing their ugly head as they gotten older. They were dealing with the fact that, you know, when they were 20, losing weight was easy. But once they reached the age of 40, losing weight was really hard. Um, <clears throat> maybe they had been very active for a long time, but then they started working on their business. They gave up exercise and then they entered into their 50s and 60s and their health started declining and they didn't know how to exercise without hurting. Those are the kinds of clients I was getting. I was starting to get people with hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder surgeries, chronic plantar fasciitis, chronic low back pain, you know, multiple sclerosis, stroke victims. And so when you start working with clients like that, 
Mm. You can't just be somebody who knows choreography. You've got to almost be, you know, like I really admire what you're doing, but you almost have to walk a fine line between medical and fitness in a way. Um, and so I feel like the, as, as our population begins to, you know, get older and older, living longer and longer, because medicine is kind of outweighing our joints nowadays, you know, medicine is keeping people alive a lot longer. Um, you know, fitness professionals and the role of a health professional now is so much different than it was when I very first got into this field. Um, we have to understand that, you know, our clients, weight loss is just one thing. You know, eating right is just one thing and they're very important things. But if you don't understand how joint works and how muscles work and how to safely put someone through a program that's not going to hurt them, I don't believe that you're going to stay in business long term. Um, so I think that the, the, the role of education, the role of uh, you being a student and continuously seeking knowledge is going to have to be ongoing if you're going to make it in this field. And I know a lot of people um, that I've presented with and work with for decades, and I, and I talk to them, all of them on a regular basis. And all of us are, well, I'm enrolled in this course right now, and I'm taking this, and I'm learning about this, or I'm, I decided to get this certification. You have to do that to, to motivate yourself and to be able to, you know, have clients respect you and, and trust you um, so that you'll be able to actually be able to work in the field and, and gain the respect that you need to have other medical and health professionals refer clients to you. Biomechanics is what I would confine. It would be the study of forces that are forces that are placed on or within uh, living systems. And when you think about biomechanics, there's so many things that come into play. And I, and I think that for me, studying biomechanics has been one of the most beneficial things for my career. I know a lot of people, you'd mentioned MAT, and also even with my yoga, yoga certifications. When we don't understand forces, it becomes really hard to understand exercise. If you think about it, a doctor prescribes medication to his clients. He might prescribe surgery. He might prescribe, uh, you know, whatever types of therapies that, he, that, that deal with it. But everything that, that we do as a fitness professional, if you had to describe what we do, we prescribe forces on people. So what does that mean? A force has a specific point of application. A force has a specific magnitude. A force has a specific direction. Uh, Forces must be placed strategically according to the structure at which they're being placed upon. And we know from the field of, of medicine, orthopedic medicine is completely built on the fact that if a force is misapplied over a period of time in a way that violates a structure, that over time, that structure will diminish. It will, it will actually deteriorate. So I always use the example. This was something that uh, Mike Morris taught me once in, in resistible training. He said, if I took a bridge and I basically uh, disrupted the, the support of the bridge somehow, or let's say that I clipped a cable on a bridge and one cable wasn't working. And I look at that bridge over a period of time when cars are driving across it, you can see that clipping that one cable over time is going to completely destroy the bridge. It's going to, the, the support system underneath the clipped cable is going to start having more force upon it, which may cause it to crumble over time. It's going to cause the cables around it to have to pull the bridge up harder. 
And it's going to cause the entire bridge to have more stress at that one area that has to be compensated for. This is the exact same thing that happens in fitness. When we think about force and how we're applying force to the body, we typically have exercises that we love to do that we do all the time. And those forces over time can actually wear joint surfaces out. So let's say the guy that comes into the gym every day and he loves to do his bench press and that's his full focus. I'm going to lay on this bench and I'm going to bench as much as I can. Right. And over time, maybe we have, we haven't paid attention to the structure of our shoulder. We haven't paid attention to the tools that we're using. Maybe we're using a, we're doing a bench press in such a way that we're not dealing with the inertia of how quickly we're moving our weight from point A to point B. And that Mm -hmm. our ability to move that weight at age 20 changes from the place that we are at age 50. Well, over time, you know, when that shoulder starts to get more and more arthritic, what ends up happening is, you know, maybe we rely more on the trunk and spine, or maybe we put a lot more stress on the opposite side. And so we start to notice a specific breakdown. So in the field of biomechanics, it really forces us to understand that every person has their own genetic blueprint. We have our own ability to move. One person, the way that one person moves is potentially completely different than the way the other person moves. So we know that there's no one exercise that's going to work for every single person. So a, a true, uh, success, truly successful health practitioner is going to be one that actually observes their client, how they move, their specific goals, how they can progressively put load against this individual so that they can be involved in exercise for a lifetime instead of just, you know, oh, I just signed up for this boot camp and you just blow yourself out in two weeks. And then that lives with you for the rest of your life. So to me, that's what biomechanics is. It's just that study of forces and how to place them on someone. You want to avoid, um, you know, isolation and just like, you know, trying to get as much energy from the people around you and, you know, meeting new people is always a good thing, especially if you're in a new environment like that. Totally. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it really was a, a tough, um, when you leave an area that you've been in for like, like, as you say, it's, it's been 33 years. Cause ex- when, when Josiah was born, uh, in July, we moved in August and it was a, a big uh, transition at that time. And it wasn't an easy transition, but we did it. You know, we were mm-hmm. uprooted and then we were transplanted and it took a while, like just like it does for the roots to just kind of get, you know, foundation in that dirt and to get the nutrition, the nutrients from that area and then to branch out and to, to grow, to flourish. And we, we did, we did there, you know, we, we have a network of beautiful people and church that we were strongly connected to. Um, and then, of course, family, as I already mentioned. Um, so it wasn't it, it wasn't easy to say goodbye to those people that I, I saw on a daily basis, even my neighbors. And the, the fun note is that I still get text messages and, and cards from my neighbors, you know, on Oak mm-hmm. Street. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I'm still connected, you know, mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, send them pictures. The little snowfall we got the other day, I sent my pictures out to people. And mm-hmm. so... Um, so obviously being here, um, we just, we just got to know on my walks, I say hi to people and I just Mm. connect with people. And if there's any, um, you know, any interest and we just kind of 
get together one like I have one friend that we do walks I do daily walks we go to the beach together we just do a lot of fun things together mm. and it's it's really good that way uh, it fulfills a need in her to have some friends in this area because she's also a new transplant here I was very I started to be concerned about cutting back on my carbs uh, just really focusing more on on uh, my my vegetables and my fruit and really cutting way back on the on the pastas and the breads and such and honestly um when i regarded the the benefits when i started to see my body be transformed and my strength uh come and i was just i had so much more energy and i saw how beneficial it was for other people just to see that in me um, just to see uh, like my example and how, how much influence it had on them. And I, I can't tell you how many women that had come to me and wanted to hear my story and wanted to know how I could help them uh, be successful. And all you could do is give what you have, get mm. what's worked for you. So uh, I was so grateful that I took off that weight and I actually kept it off for quite, quite a few years. And, you know, um, we're not exempt uh, to, as you laid those bad habits down, I had habits to be um, reckoned with, dealt with about around food preparation. You know, you can't just eat slipped in foods that you're preparing. You just have to be disciplined. You know, you have certain times where you eat, you might allow yourself a snack, but you don't eat outside of those times or you don't just mindlessly just put things in your mouth. You, you, you have to be careful of the habits around food and food prep. For me, uh, for me, it was how much, you know, obviously you, you control how much you eat uh, at a sitting. And, you know, you keep in mind, I'm not going to eat uh, for that 180 pound woman that I was. I'm not going to eat that way anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. So and then, of course, being active. I still um, hold fast to being active you have to be you, you got to move you got to move and i'm in the process of i i walk six miles a day pretty much five to six miles every day um i do have an exercise bike that's sitting right here in the living room that i get on and i i work with that and i have other things i'm going to uh reintroduce because um, mm. i feel it's important to maintain strength absolutely uh, especially as we age like you know we're in our 60s, the natural thing to do is to lose that muscle tone. So mm. we have to be pretty intentional to keep mm. it, to keep strong. And that's what I want to do. And I, I hope that that's what Ken wants to do too, because we'd like to do that together. That would yeah. be very, it's, it's always better together. I never got an allowance, but I remember just being able to go with you, dad, you, uh, one thing we didn't really talk about is that you had a reupholstery business. Uh, so I would work with you, um, when I was very young, probably about 10 or 11. And, uh, you would pay me like five bucks an hour to, to kind of work with you. And that was a really cool replacement for having an allowance, um, or, mm -hmm. or, I feel like a better alternative uh, to that. Is there any particular reason why you guys as parents, I guess, didn't follow along with that like societal uh, obligation, mm -hmm. if you will, to, to, you know, give your kids money. 
without necessarily earning and, and working for it. Cause now I feel like I don't really, uh, have much of a desire to have anything given to me for free. I think working for stuff is really valuable working for what you want is valuable. So I, I attribute that to you. So is there any reason why you guys didn't really follow along with the rest of the pack? First, I want to ask, is that all I gave you? $5 an hour? <laughs> it might have gone up a little bit with inflation. <laughs> over time and over age. And with my increasing responsibilities, I, I went from just giving you tools and stuff to actually working on the product. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, yeah, I think that I know that I never wanted to have for myself kind of a, a victim um uh, uh, attitude like I feel like people owe me mm -hmm. so I felt like throughout my life especially from my young adult years that uh, there was plenty that I had to do uh, to work hard and I think that just transferred over into the raising of our children by not giving an allowance and still expecting chores to be done but not necessarily getting paid for it and I also remember that you, along with all our children, we had them do their own laundry at a very, very early age. Mm. And you were very good at that. Uh, so that's that's kind of part of it, just working uh, working hard for what it is uh, that you you get. And making my own lunches, too. I made that. You guys did make me lunches sometimes, like when I wouldn't get up in time. I'm, I wouldn't have enough time to it, but I do remember like starting to make lunches at an early age. So. Yeah, and we used to stick a little note of encouragement inside your lunches. Anna was going to, at the time grandma lived with us, um, daddy's mom, and Anna was going to come and stay with her so we can come and have um a vacation in Myrtle Beach. We had set it for Myrtle Beach. Mm -hmm. And then it was going to happen in August. Mm -hmm. Anna passed um, in July of 2018. And so that never happened. And of course, we weren't really interested in going on any vacation uh, as the we were grief struck and mm -hmm. having a very, very difficult time. And I reiterate with dad, I, that you were such a support for me. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know how you, you actually did that, except I think your resilience in your age, but you, I, as a mom that was just in such grief, having you by my side, Greg, I don't think I ever told you this meant so much to me, so much to me. Mm, yeah. There. And I know it was I know it was difficult for you and created a lot of of um, I'm sure as it grief has uh, a very strong effect and it needs to be released um, and it needs to be dealt with and it's dealt oh. with differently for everybody because we're all very different. Yeah, H having uh, having gone through that like as a family, yeah. uh, the unthinkable. I've talked about her briefly on this podcast before just like you know sharing a little bit about mm -hmm. what happened that night and then what happened after with, with my personal experience but what do you guys feel with having gone through your own version of the grieving process mm -hmm. um 
you probably didn't know what to do at first. You probably didn't know how to think or act. Uh, but looking back on it now, what would you say is the most important thing to do in a situation like that? Okay. That's a good question. Maybe we, maybe we should, maybe we should talk about what not to do first. Right. Well, I think first of all, you know, I have to say community, I think the support um, that we had, um, I have to say that, you know, I could, I could pray and I could cry out to God and, and feel in a sense um, still so uh, full of heartache, so full of, of grief and anguish. And yet I, I couldn't help but acknowledge that people uh, were there representing God's love and, and support. I mean, you know, the prayers and the people that, even when they didn't know what to say or do, but they were there. Um, I would say that that the prayers and the people that, that came to the home, uh, I would say that people that also went through it themselves, I had women, moms call me that have lost, uh, kind of vet, veterans, if you will, that have lost children, that have reached out to me, even to, uh, one of my children and said, would your mom appreciate a call from me? Uh, a dear, a dear woman, um, Kathy Lazat, who lost her daughter. I want to say it's been, it's probably been close to 15 years or no, no 12 years, 12 years. Cause I know. Yep. So about 12 years ago, um, she reached out to me. She visited me. She allowed me just to, to cry and to, to do what I needed to, to express what was going on. And, you know, um, she read a book to me. It was called Tear Soup. And it was like a book that you could read. It could be a child's book, but it was also something that really spoke to you as an adult going through that grieving process. Just a woman just crying and just going through the process of of feeling what she felt every day and working it through. And then her husband who was feeling it in his own way, um, you know, and some of the friends that came in that had helpful things to say. And some of the friends that didn't, didn't necessarily um, weren't, weren't as, as helpful as maybe they were hoping to be because they don't know but you understand. I know I I understand that. But so I would say the support of people, um, I wasn't one to isolate myself, although I needed time alone to just just to cry and to, you know, feel that that devastating loss that mm. there is no replacement for. You can mm. replace a lot of things that you lose in life. You can't replace a child. Mm. You can't replace the missing piece. But you you go on and you honor her life or his life. And you live out your life. In the moment, it helps me to live in the moment and to tell my loved ones how much I love them and to appreciate. I feel like I appreciate so much more. You know, even coming here, there was a restlessness that was birthed in me when she, when she passed. And that restlessness seemed to be tended to 
Mm. Uh, when I thought of the idea of, you know, having an, a place to escape, if you will, I don't like the word escape because you don't ever escape <laughs> that kind of thing, but it was a change of scenery. It was a place where we can enjoy spring and summer <laughs> more mm. and get out more and enjoy uh, the beauty of God's creation here in South Carolina. And I think it was just a healthy change for me at that time in life. Um, I didn't know it was going to be a permanent change as it seems to be now, although I, you never know, mm. <laughs> but we're here now. And um, mm -hmm. so she has been part of that process here because we didn't, uh, we never did get that Myrtle Beach uh, vacation, but we came here and we checked it out because we wanted to see what it had for us. And we ended up finding a home here. I have uh, realized that we have come to care for each other very deeply and we, it gives new meaning to what friendship is all about. And also there are many challenges over the 40 years. Yeah, uh, sure. Like when our daughter passed away was a challenge mm -hmm. and uh, it really hurt deeply and it affects the relationship. But if you don't keep loving each other, uh, you know, there are stories of relationships just falling apart, people getting a divorce, uh, love deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we, by God's grace, have not allowed that to happen. Uh, getting older together is also a challenge. Health issues. <clears throat> health, <laughs> yep. Health and uh, communication when you're older is different <laughs> and more challenging because communication is being able to listen and also understand what the, and to hold what the individual is trying to uh, to hold it in common, really, which is what communication uh, is is all about. So I am, uh, we are very blessed, and I am very blessed uh, because not sure I'll speak for myself uh, would be able to to go on very well uh, without you. Aww. So here's a kiss to seal with a kiss. <laughs> Very good. Nice. First kiss on Sets and Reps, the podcast. <laughs> there are tons and tons and tons of different types of therapy. Um, typically, these fall into a couple of like bigger sections. So I'll kind of go over the basics here because um, I could probably talk forever about this. But uh, so... <laughs> The, the first one um, is called psychodynamic therapy. Um, this is really great for people who want long-term therapy and support. Um, this type of therapy is going to dive deeper into learning about yourself, uh, learning about some of your unconscious thoughts, emotions, um, bodily experiences, as well as your different relationships, um, how they've impacted you to this point. And like I said, just learning about yourself and learning about why, you know, you're maybe making uh, certain decisions or why you, I don't know, things like that. Like how, how 
your life has impacted where you are today. Like where you want to go in the future, probably. Exactly. Has a lot of mm-hmm. deep connection with that too. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, that's going to be good for longer term therapy. So if you want to do like a year or more of therapy, I would say that's a good route to go. Um, the second one here is behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, they're very similar. So this is going to be a style that is really great for shorter term use. Uh, we see this a lot if you're going into like a college counseling center or somewhere where they have, you know, maybe six to eight sessions or something like that that are covered. Um, and this is really good for addressing kind of your, your behaviors your um, patterns, your decision-making, it's really action-based. So you're going to see like a lot of journaling type stuff and Mm. um, uh, like food journaling, for example, is one Um, habit forming, different stuff like that. And really what's great about this is that it cognitive behavioral therapy explores your core beliefs about yourself, um, whether they're good or whether they're bad. And then they can help you to reframe some of those negative thoughts and move Mm -hmm. them into a more positive way of thinking. So really this is going to be, um, again, the shorter term use, uh, that's, that's great for practical solutions. I have two experiences with therapy and one of them was very brief and it was uh with see it was was with cognitive behavioral therapy mm. um and it was actually online with the better help app i'm sure you're familiar yeah um so i had tried that out for a little bit and it wasn't and it was interesting because it's it just like you're saying action-based um to help with behaviors it was something that i was dealing with with work performance and mm. um it actually helped me a lot because it was uh, in my communication style with uh, new, new clients or new people that I, would meet, I was meeting in the gym for the first time. Um, and a kind of like acute nervousness or like um, fear of failure that like in the moment was mm. making it too much, too difficult for me to like, to do my job well. So mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the few sessions that I had with uh, this therapist, she was awesome. Um, I was able to uh, help myself and get help kind of reframing or like you were saying, turning negative thoughts into neutral or even positive ones um, mm-hmm. with, with kind of exercises too. And that's awesome to have that follow up for people to be able to um, start taking action for sure. Do you do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy yourself? So, um, it is a really good tool. It it kind of depends. Um, I would say CBT just in addition is, is really great for people who uh, are looking for a lot of structure in their therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say for me personally, I do integrate it in, um, depending on what the client is coming in with. Um, Mm -hmm. so I actually practice from kind of a more, uh, humanistic um realm of therapy which essentially is um 
meeting the client where they're at. So it's going to be a really relationship-based therapy, um, not as structured. It's You can do it really long-term or short-term therapy. Um, and what I like about the humanistic realm is that the client chooses what they want to bring into the session. Um, so it's really client driven. Um, and I think it, it helps address what they think is important to work on. Um, obviously, you know, there's some flexibility there with things that we have to have to address in terms of safety and stuff like that. Um, but I think it, it is effective in that way, you know, teaching the client to understand themselves and to explore themselves and, and learn to make their own decisions um, with just the guidance of, of the therapist. I think there's lots and lots of misconceptions out there. Um, and, and that just highlights why this is so important to talk about so that people get the correct information. Um, so I would say the biggest thing that I hear is that if you're going to therapy, there's something wrong with you or you're crazy or you're weak or there are all these like negative words that float around. Um, there's a lot of stigma still that exists around going to therapy. Um, and I think we do see that shifting a little bit kind of with these uh, younger generations. But um, definitely there's a lot of things that that kind of may prevent someone from seeking a therapist. Um, mm -hmm. You know, really, I think if you are seeking that help for yourself, that shows strength. It doesn't show weakness. It shows, you know, that curiosity about yourself to get to want to know yourself and to better your relationships with people and with the world. Um, so I, I would say that's the biggest misconception that I hear. Um, I also hear, you know, you shouldn't go to therapy unless you're like in a crisis. That's, that's also not the case. I think therapy can be useful for anyone, really. Um, even if you feel like you don't have anything that's like super, super urgent or uh, important at that moment, there's always something for you to talk about, um, whether that's your experiences growing up, whether that's your um, personal identities, whether that's your values, just setting goals, different things like that. There's always something that can come up. <laughs> Another good one is, is, you know, I don't want to pay for someone to just listen to all my problems. You know, I could just talk to my friends or family about that. I could start and, a podcast. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny. No, this is, this is actually, this is a great outlet, I think, to, to get some of the stigma decreased. Honestly. Um, it's, yeah. great. it's great to it's also just great to like learn from people like you um but it's yeah sorry my joke my joke completely took us off the rails but like <laughs> you were okay. saying you were saying don't um you know i don't i don't want to pay someone to talk about my problems with um yeah and that's that's another thing too yeah yeah so i would say you know well, for one, a lot of times now we're moving towards insurance covering mm. therapy. So in a lot of cases, you may not have to pay for it at all. Um, and, and two, you know, therapy is going to be a lot different than just, you know, telling what you think are your problems to this stranger that you don't know, um, or to a friend even. 
just yeah. because of the, yeah. the training that we receive as therapists. You know, there's a reason why we go to school for so long to do this. We know uh, different interventions. We're trained in um, risk assessment. We're trained for, you know, suicidal thoughts, eating disorders, substance use. Like there are all these areas that we're trained in. Um, and we also learn about evidence-based uh, theories. And so, you know, it's not that we're just a blank sounding mm. board necessarily. Um, we are doing things very intentionally. So if someone's coming in with a specific concern, we are trained to know here's what works for this concern. And here's what I'm going to do to try to help this person help themselves essentially. Um, and I think what people will find over time is that your therapist doesn't feel like a stranger anymore after those first maybe one or two, maybe a, several sessions. Um, and you really get to build a close and trusting relationship that's different from other relationships that you have in your life. With therapy, I will say the, the, the best way to get someone to buy into what you are talking about is building that trust, building that relationship. Um, so, you know, in the first couple sessions, it's going to be a lot of, uh, like specifically the first session, you're, you're getting a lot of information about your client. Um, and so that can feel really uncomfortable at first. Um, and then I think what people find throughout, you know, session two, three, four, et cetera, um, it, it's a little bit less information intensive. So there's some time to get to know each other. There's some time to find common ground, build a relationship. Um, and like I said, build that trust. And then once that is established, it kind of flows really, really nicely. Hey, thank you so much for listening to episode 46 of Sets and Reps, the podcast. We are going to take a short break right now. I want to share with you a brief clip from episode 45 which featured my mom and dad we got on a conversation together it was really fun i believe you listeners really enjoyed this one because it got a lot of attention a lot of streams the first couple days of it coming out so thank you as well for that we talked about what it was like for them to move to south carolina in their 60s after having lived in a small town for about 30 years further up north we also talk about a tragic experience that we went through as a family about four years ago and what the natural and healthy process of grief should be based on our experience and we talked about some habits that my parents used at a very young age that has stayed with me since then at 23 and finally we also talk about how they have been together now for a very long time 40 years and what it is like to be with someone for that long what are some of the things that you have to do to maintain a stable and happy relationship so take a listen into this clip you have to be careful of the habits around food and food prep obviously you you control how much you eat uh, at a sitting and you know, you keep in mind, I'm not going to eat uh, for that 180 pound woman that I was. I'm not going to eat that way anymore, you know. Mm. And then, of course, being active. I still um, hold fast to being active. I walk six miles a day 
pretty much five to six miles every day. Um, I do have an exercise bike that's sitting right here in the living room that I get on and I, I work with that. And I have other things I'm going to uh, reintroduce because um, mm. I feel it's important to maintain strength. Absolutely. Uh, especially as we age, like, you know, we're in our 60s. The natural thing to do is to lose that muscle tone. So mm. we have to be pretty intentional to keep mm. it, to keep strong. Thanks again for listening. Now, let me take you back to episode 46. I think definitely something I found to help is presenting people with the scientific facts or the evidence behind why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so we know, you know, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy can be great at um, changing habits and changing thought patterns. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence that shows this is why it works. Mm. It, it helps restructure the brain. Um, same thing with like mindfulness and meditation. So I think presenting people with, here's why we're doing it. Um, here's the evidence that we have that can definitely help. Um, I think also like, if you think about modeling in terms of the therapist demonstrating these qualities for themselves. So for me, you know, I'll say, for example, this is a meditation that I do um, every night or whatever it might be mm -hmm. um, and say, you know, I have found it very helpful. Uh, I would like to give it to you. And if you feel like it may be helpful, um, try it out, see how you feel. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. You know, we'll find something that does. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is that trial and error figuring out what works for that person individually and, and being flexible with it. Um, I, I think giving people that lenience to figure out what fits best for them helps them to buy in because they have a say in it. They have choice. It's not like they're just being told do this and it should work. You know, there's, there's options. Mm. Um, so definitely, you know, and then taking baby steps, easing into it so that it's not so overwhelming. I was a, a competitive cheerleader all the way through college. Um, unfortunately, in college, I had a lot of injuries, uh, just freak accidents, mostly, you know, which happen a lot in, in cheerleading because it's, it's a risky sport. Um, so, you know, there was a time where I had uh, knee surgery. I had completely torn my ACL, torn my meniscus um, and fractured my tibia. And so that put me out, you know, for months. Um, I ended up having to miss our national championship uh, competition. And so I found myself feeling super alone, super depressed. Um, you know, my body was physically changing. I was losing muscle. I had no appetite. Um, I was sleeping a lot and I felt really disconnected from my teammates because I wasn't seeing them every day. Like I was used to, um, I instead had to go to physical therapy. And so, um, you know, and, and I was on crutches. So it was like, I, it was hard for me to get around. There were lots of factors playing into that. And so I remember thinking like, man, you know, I'm not even worried about my, physical health, I can get over the pain. I, I know that I'm actively working on rehabbing it. Um, but for me, the concern was my mental health. 
because there, there were no resources to address the mental side of the injury. Um, you know, I had my own experiences kind of with coaches and not necessarily really believing that I was hurt in the first place and kind of, um, different stories around that. But, um, you know, there, there was no mental health support essentially. And so I felt, I found myself isolating and just kind of falling into that depression. Um, and so that fast forward now, um, into my doctorate program, I was like, man, how can I make a difference in the sports community? Um, and for me, it was like, wow, you know, thinking back on that injury, this makes total sense to do some type of research on injured athletes, um, especially in the college level, because I think there's a lot of unique factors that play into that identity in that time of your life. Um, and thinking about, you know, the resources that people have on campus, there, there are a lot of opportunities there to provide mental health services. So my research now is focusing on um, the psychological effects of injury uh, for female collegiate athletes at the division one level. And so really what we see is that not much research has been done uh, on women injured female athletes. And so there's a huge gap in the research because we can't depend on you know, generalizing it for what's been done for men. Um, it does look a little bit different for women as we're finding out um, just because of different identity factors and different experiences in, in sports. Um, and so really this research is addressing what the injured female athlete goes through um, emotionally and what support is she getting? How does she feel uh, in connection to her team? What kind of team atmosphere is it? Stuff like that. Um, and then looking at, you know, what role did maybe the um, uh, mental health counselors at her school play? What role did the coaches play? What role did the athletic trainers play? Um, and how can we sort of integrate the injury recovery treatment into something that addresses not only the physical, but also the mental health aspects so that we are giving her the best care possible. And so that we see less of these severe mental health concerns. It's like, what, do you, what does that even mean? Like realignment? Like, yeah, true. You know, that, exactly. Like it's just a narrative. Like, were you actually out of alignment? Com yeah. And compared to what too? Like yeah, the exactly. textbook? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. everyone is. Right. Like anatomical uh, variation too. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like you have a, like, like a leg length discrepancy where it's like one's longer than the other with you laying on the table. It's like, first of all, like probably somewhat true for everybody, depending on the scale that you look at it. That's... Um, and also like, how do you consistently measure that? Somebody's just laying on the fucking table. What if I just laid on the table a little bit differently? And mm -hmm. then you see him like swing the legs back and forth and it's like, ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> right. It's like, how do you, yeah. like there's no consistency in, like the measurement of that, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, that that's a common theme from what you were saying. Your bereavement with the part of your bereavement with the whole thing is that there there was a lack of consistency. Like, if you were if you were to describe it and 
define it um from what from your experiences what you feel like the ideal should be like what what should chiropractic be compared to what it sounds like some of the problems you've had with it um comparing, no. comparing it to that what do you feel like it should be yeah so like like for most people i mean i think like let me ask you this like how do you how do you perceive like personal training like what are you as a personal trainer mm. um i would i would say something different for each person um i would say that for some i'm a coach and i need to meet them there so that they don't sit all day and uh yeah. i need to keep them accountable to the tasks at hand i would say to others i am someone that can spend an hour uh with you know teaching them educating them on what's right and wrong for their body and how to build strength and move well without pain um and you yeah. know, for others, it's just I'm, I'm I'm someone that they can they can talk to about a lot of their stuff, and and we can we can take it out together in the gym. Dude, yeah, hundred percent. Like no different in chiropractic, like mm -hmm. musculoskeletal field, like whatever. Like you have a bit more scope of practice, but like the fact that you have like identified that there's a difference between this individual and this individual, and like they all have different needs. It's like you're just a guide, like you're just like an external source of information that's easier to look at than the internet. Cause it's like, think about how much bullshit's on the internet. Like you're, you're a filter and you're a personality to them. Right. But you're, you're essentially just guiding them through this process of a healthier lifestyle. Mm. And it, it's kind of the same thing. And like, I think working with individuals in pain is more common. Cause like when people are in pain, they go see a clinician, but it's the same thing. Like we're guiding them through a painful experience. And I mm. think that the narrative now is that, you go see a chiropractor and it's like, they fix your pain. They fix whatever, but it's like, we're not really doing that. Like, especially like using low back as an example, like low back has a great natural history, like six weeks, like significant pain reduction. And then after that could be three months, six months, 12 months, like who knows. But, uh, I think it's like two thirds of people still have pain at six months, two thirds of people still have pain at 12 months. Um, and it's just like you're you're guiding them through that experience, trying to make that experience more enjoyable, trying to make not that it's an enjoyable experience, right? But like mitigating the negativity of that experience and the impact that it has on their life. Coaching, physical therapy, chiropractic, like it's really just an ongoing conversation. Mm. And like I don't mean that to say that there's not a place for passive modalities like spinal manipulation and man manual therapy, because like given any specific context, like there's probably a, a context where everything is fairly useful right and like i perceive passive modalities in a context where it's like okay we have a lot of pain going on so like people are resistant to move so can we remove some of that resistance for to get them moving in the right direction but it's like the problem is the narrative presented with that passive modality like is it presented like i'm just gonna you know crack your back here and you're gonna feel good and then you come back and see me next week and we do the same thing. And eventually it's going to get better. Like, are you actually doing right. anything or is that just time? Right. And like, there is merit to like, uh, like transient pain reduction with these, uh, modalities. But it's like, I imagine like you kind of feel the same way with personal training. It's like, to me, like a sign of a, a good clinician or personal trainer is like same situation comes up in somebody's lives and they have the tools to deal with it on their own. Right. And it's a, as to whether or not they've been listening to you and taking in the right putting into practice the things that you've yeah and that's just as much representative of how you communicate with them and like how open they mm -hmm. are to receive it
Yeah, man. Commun- and it's, it's, it's difficult. Like communication is like a difficult thing. It's a simple thing, I think, but I think it is difficult because you have to read another individual and you can't just vomit all this education. I think that's, this is like one of the uh, most difficult parts of chiropractic is like somebody comes in with the narrative that you're going to adjust them and they're going to feel mm, there. You have that. And like that's, that's the resolution to the problem. Like that's the solution. And it's like, now I have to pull them back from this. So I have to somehow like reframe their expectation. And if you're just like too blunt with it, like they might not come back. So it's like lost opportunity. So it's like, how can you like, like just like you would dose exercise, right? Mm -hmm. For someone who maybe they can't back squat yet. Maybe we just go to like a goblet squat and then progress over time. It's the same thing with information, Mm -hmm. like just dosing in information and kind of seeing how they respond to it and then giving them more over time. That's a good thing. Yeah. And then just being really authentic about the whole thing. A lot of what I've learned from different coaches on the show and on, you know, like social media in general, some of the people that are on the more clear and honest side of the platform is that authenticity is a huge, uh, like, necessity for for if you're relaying any kind of information. Yeah, yeah um, I agree. I think authenticity is huge. And like we have a reach with people and responsibility, as you said, guiding them uh, away from stuff like the bullshit on the internet. <laughs> and yeah, and that's why I mentioned like your, your filter and also personality, like that authenticity is a great way to build buy-in. Like it's human connection. Mm. Like how do you get somebody to listen to you? Like you connect. Yeah. They, they like you as an individual. They're probably going to listen to you. You share to a story. Some degree. Yeah. Even today, like one of my clients, I was like, I try not to get too personal with them during a session because it's about them and it's not about me. But there was, you know, a situation that kind of was relevant to to the both of us. And we, we found out that it was something similar that had happened. And so that makes you more of a human <laughs> if, right, you, yeah. if you can rest in the fact that you have both had the same experience. No, 100% agree. Yeah. And it's like, I'm trying to get you to do this thing because it's worked for me. Um, and this is the results that I've had with it. So why not give it a try? Right. And like you sharing a story and some vulnerability of like what they might have be having issues with, uh, like it opens up the floor for them. Like they probably feel safer after that. That was one of my things where it's like, okay, do I even need this degree or am I just getting it to get it? Because you can still work with a painful population, mm. right? And you you do have to be careful because, like, I'm not saying, like, all personal trainers should just go out and, like, work with a bunch of people in the painful population because you need to know, you know, like, what red flags to look for yeah, to get them to where they need to go, worse. right? But I do have that education behind me. Like, I'm fairly confident that I could at least ask the right questions to be like, eh, maybe go see this guy before you come work out with me or something like yeah. that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I don't think clinicians are needed for a lot of like painful cases. Like we talked about like low back pain and the natural history of it. Mm-hmm. Like there's not much we can actually do aside from uh, like keeping people moving, giving them some confidence and maybe uh, implementing some passive modalities here and there to mitigate the severity of the pain. Attempt yeah. that. and if you miss all three attempts of any given lift you'll bomb out like they don't you can't continue with the competition so like if i like a squat bench deadlift three attempts each and they have you in flights 
uh, flight A of like squat will all go through. They'll just go through the rotation for all three attempts. They'll move to flight B, whatever. Um, and then they'll move to bench deadlift. But if you say you miss all three attempts of squat, you don't move on to bench or deadlift. Say you, as long as you hit one, you're locked in. So if I hit mm. one squat, I miss my second, third attempt, I can go on to bench. Mm. But if I miss all three benches, I can't deadlift. Like you're, mm. you're done. Uh, that might vary based on organize, uh, organization that you lift through. Uh, Which... I have experience with RPS and um, USAPO. Okay. So I can't speak on anything else. There might be, there's always different rules for. Were you indifferent like about either of them or uh, was yeah, there? I was indifferent. USAPL was just more organized. Like mm. I tried it cause I hadn't done it before. Um, and it was a good experience. Mm. Yeah. Just do it though. Like honestly, it's the best advice. If you're thinking about powerlifting, just do it. There's no pre prerequisite for it. Um, the community is awesome. If you show up and exert effort on the platform, everybody will clap for you. Mm. Right. It's just a fun, fun time. Like that's why I like it. Like, I'm not trying to be the strongest guy in the world. Like I've let that yeah. ego go right from the Hampshire Hills experience, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, a, it's a good experience and you get like, you get to meet a lot of like-minded people. Mm, I think that's huge. the best part about it. Like, I don't even think it's the weight lifted for me anymore. Mm -hmm. Are you going to do another one? You think maybe mm -hmm. if, I, if I feel like I want to, yeah, I'll do it. I don't have any, like anything on the, the schedule. Yeah. I'm sure I'll get no. back to it, but like I have other things that I kind of want to like try. I don't know if I'll, I've thought about maybe doing some bodybuilding. I don't know if I will. Um, right now, it's just kind of like lifting for the fuck of lifting. <laughs> lifting for the sake of it. Just because I enjoy it. So, yeah. Yeah. You did one recently, like in the last six months or so. I did one in December. Yeah. 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 Okay. I couldn't even tell you what numbers I put up, to be honest. No. Uh, That's fine. 13, it was more than your last something. one. Yeah. I think it, I PR'd like maybe 10 pounds in totality. But. Yeah. And that's something. No you just got to chip away at it because you're yeah. gonna, you're going to be different every time you attempt to lift anything. I feel like it's not it's not always going to be the same exact experience. Like through training, you try to you try to ingrain patterns that are you know are going to stick. Like <clears throat> when you're doing your working sets versus your really 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 heavy ones, that's when you work on your cues and your form, right? And then when you go to lift, it's just kind of lift type of thing, right? Yeah. 100%. I feel like that's how it's going to end up being on the platform too. Yeah. And like intensity will control like arousal. Like I'm not going to work at, you know, a hundred percent of my max and mm -hmm. try to cue technique. It's just, it doesn't work. Like I'll black out if I'm working at a hundred percent of my max. <laughs> remember a damn thing. Yeah. And like even on the platform, like I don't remember my lift at all. I get up there and I just, I'm like in the zone. Like I, I black out. I don't know. That's cool. If it goes up, it goes up to me. That's... I just remember when I'm at the top. Yeah. Do you have to, you have to wait, right? There are commands. For, yeah. 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 Was that hard to adjust to? No. Once you, I mean, you'll, you'll fuck one of them up for sure. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I fucked up a couple. Um, but yeah, you'll learn quick if you do. Cause yeah. then it's just not, you don't think about anything else going into your second attempt. It's just like, don't rack too early. Like I did that the one I, I think it was 2019 when I competed. I re-racked too early on my first squat attempt. And mm. then it just kind of like screwed up my progression, but it's like, whatever. And because you did that count as a fail? Are there? Yeah. It's a no lift. Yeah. If you miss it. Okay. Yeah. So then you have two or three more attempts or yeah, whatever. Exactly. You just get back right back into it. Mm. No biggie. If there's a leader or someone that you follow, are you able to 
filter out the bullshit for yourself? Like, are there ways that you've been able to kind of see through what information is valuable from that person? And then what information is just kind of like, kind of like what we were saying earlier, like just time, like this is like, I'm going to fix you and come back to me in a week type of thing. Like someone who has a decent agenda to educate you and help you with tools you can apply versus someone who I guess just has an unkind intention or unkind motivation for what they're putting out. I mean, I think intention is one thing like you can have good intent and still put out bullshit information, right? It's like mm-hmm. the best way to do it is just go look for the information yourself. Honestly, I think that's like one of the best uh, learning experiences that I got from Cairo school is just kind of being like coming to the realization that a lot of this information is outdated and being pissed off about it. Cause like you're paying this institution to give you the information you need to be a good clinician, or at least you think. And then it's like, why are we, you know, preaching all this outdated information? And Mm. it's like, what the fuck? And then you just got to go look at it for yourself. Like, I think finding it at the source is the best way to see if it's good information. Like, try to come up with your own conclusion and maybe Mm. compare to others. And if somebody gives you information, it's just asking questions about it. And it doesn't need to be directly with that Mm. individual, but, like, think about it and, like, Think about the different angles that you can attack that information. Like what other variables exist that could be at play here? Yeah. Like tr- not trying to like poke holes in it. Well, we, we'll trying to poke holes in it, but like, yeah, like, testing, you, like you need to challenge the idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I want my clients to ask me questions during a training session, because if I can't, if I can't answer the question for them, I know that there's something that's missing with my own competencies, but then I can help give them give them information from from someone who can answer it a little bit better. Right, and if it's a hole in your knowledge now, you know it's a, like it's a blind spot. It's that communication aspect where yeah. like, it pokes a hole. It's like, oh, I need to fill that, and then you go look it up on your own, and then you have the information. Yeah, it's just like filling those gaps as you go, and that's why experience is so valuable because you you don't always know what you don't know until you go and try to apply it, and it's like, oh, I'm missing something. Fuck. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. I love that mentality experience. But yeah, and I, I think just like the best finding the information at the source, like you can take all the the courses you want on the internet. Like if you trust the source, like sure. But I mean, dig through some of the sources that they use. Mm. If they don't have sources, question it. Yeah. Like, why don't you have sources? Maybe you can ask for them. It doesn't mean that they're entirely wrong, but mm. it's, I think it's valuable to look into. Mm. Hell yeah. I have trust issues as well. So (laughs) (laughs) that's something too. Um, like conclusions or like coming to a conclusion, something that's like hard and fast, like not a lot of, not a lot of stuff is hard and fast. Like this is something that our former, your former boss, my current boss (coughs) Shelby told me, this is something I valued is like, like if if someone's speaking in absolutes, I think that's another way you can a hundred percent tell whether, Or not, they beyond the intention. If they're speaking in absolutes, like this is one way, this is the other way. Um, yep. There's no in between. Like that's how you can tell someone is bullshitting you. Yeah, it's that dualistic train of thought. Like you're not looking at everything in between. Like most things are on a spectrum, and I, mm-hmm. like I think even that, like on a spectrum, is reductionist because it doesn't appreciate like the the relationship of so many variables. 
right? Like looking at somebody in pain, it's like, okay, sure. We can have technique be one variable. Mm -hmm. Maybe posture is another variable, but you can't just be like your posture is what's causing your pain. Cause yeah. think about like yeah. nutrition, think about like their, uh, quality of sleep, mm -hmm. their sleep habits, like what are, their, what are their activity levels? What are, what are their, what's their injury history? Like all the, yeah. Water too. Like all these different things, like life stressors, mm. like, do they hate their job? Like, are they working two jobs? Are they a single mother? Like all these things can play a role in somebody's life. And it's just like pointing out these one things in absolutes of like, this is the cause of your pain is like, you're just missing the picture completely. Forget, I think I saw research where the average person opens up Facebook 19 times a day. I mean, and that's just Facebook, you know, Instagram is probably even more than that, but we live in a 2d world. We're seeing everything on a 2d you know, front. You see somebody who looks good or somebody who puts a message out there. It's like, you know, you can argue about what they're, they're trying to do or what they're trying to perceive, but it's still a 2d message where when we talk about communication, that is 3d. So I tell a story, like when I was uh, first in this business, the first place I worked at was more of a commercial type gym. We did all high-end one-on-one personal training. Uh, we were an FMS based site. So we were doing all assessment. We did a lot of rehab. So a lot of people that were coming to us for one-on-one -on -one work, didn't just do it for, I want to look good. I want to feel good. Like they needed rehab. Like they, if they didn't do anything, they were going down a deep path of not being able to move or a lot of other health issues. And we were, you know, we charged a, a premium, you know, cost so the average person there was spending 450, $500 a month in there. And we plus had, we had a membership as well. So we were doing, you know, thousands of personal training sessions a week. But what I would do is I was in charge of the front desk staff, who was all young kids that were coming in and they were, you know, great. They were, you know, vibrant kids, but they don't really know what this is about. And I would tell them, I'd say, look, this club has, you know, 1200 members of it, of those members, 50% of them do one-on-one -on -one personal training. They're spending you know, upwards of 500 to some were spending up to seven, $800 a month to come here and train. Like we have some of the greatest coaches in the, in the area. And so I just put all these different things of what we do on an everyday basis. I said, but the person who's never met us before and has no idea who we are and is coming to check us in, you're the first person that they see up front. So it's like, if you don't give them a smile, if you don't greet them with enthusiasm and excitement, then all the stuff that I just laid out for you that could happen for them here all washes away. It's like, so as soon as I said that, they're like, oh, I'm a part of this team. I'm not just a kid making minimum wage. You're a part of a group that could change somebody's life and change it by itself. And that's a serious thing to, to tell a 16 year old who it's their first job going in. But I said, so all you like, if you don't do anything else, right, like smile and greet every single person that comes in here, learn their name, like learn who they are, like, what do they like to do? If they come in, you can tell if somebody has a rough day, the way they walk into a place, like ask them, Hey, how's it going? Hey, you're here now. You know, it's like, you're doing something good. Give them a little bit of positive juice. And those are the things that they don't, you don't need a certification for. You don't need 20 years of experience to do. Everybody can do that. And I mm -hmm. think that's, that's really the biggest part of, you know, starting with communication in our industry. Hiring people, I think is a, it's not a trait that I'm great at. Uh, it's, I think hiring people is a skill just like anything, you know, to do, but 
there's certain things that you saw, like a, a desire to learn and humility is a huge piece right there. It's like, you have to be humble. You know, like I went into in 2010, when I first got into kettlebell training, which is my main thing that I do for coaching and training, uh, I was in the RKC system and then moved into strong first. And the RKC was like the, you know, that level of certification you go it was like a military boot camp that weekend. We were doing swings all the time and it was very aggressive with it. And, you know, the training, it's 60% pass on the first day, like the 40% fail and they have to do more stuff afterwards. Like it's very tough. And it was almost like a rite of passage when you got there. And so going in, I trained for that very hard personally myself because I wanted to be an RKC instructor. But there was a, a message that uh, Coach John Ingham, who was my team leader there, gave about this is just the beginning. It's like once you pass this, like and you're an art and you're an instructor, this is the beginning of your journey. It's like, you have to continuously learn afterwards mm -hmm. and realizing that now that because I was in 2010. So that was 11 years ago that I did this, the amount of knowledge and experience that I've gained over this time in coaching versus what I thought coaching was back then is so night and day of how to get to help somebody. It's like, you just have to continuously always know that there's new things to learn. So when mm. somebody comes in with that, like, some, you know, you know, body language is a huge thing. You know, if somebody is looking and they're actually engaged, they're following you, they're asking questions. That was one thing that I saw who the people who really thrived and eventually hired and worked with who are now doing very well, either from that place or they've gone on and did their own thing, is they ask questions back in the interview. Like, especially young people, like so many times they go into an interview and they just think they're supposed to sit there and just you know, fuel the bullets that are coming at them. It's like, no, like engage in what are the things that are important to you? Like, besides what do I get paid? You know, it's like, what environment do you want to work in? And the ones that ask those questions is like, what is the path? Like, how do you coach? Like, how do you see me progressing mm. in this? They were coming in with that mindset. I knew, okay, now we're connected together mm. because if any, anybody out there is a teacher and they know they teach kids who don't want to mm. be taught, that is like, what do you do with that? You know, it takes time to build a training business. You know, it took, it takes some months. It takes some hard time. It takes reaching out. It takes putting yourself out there. Yeah. There's a sales component to it. You know, you need to understand how to talk to people, how to ask them for money, how to be confident in what you're selling somebody in there and then delivering and then over delivering on your promise. And if you're doing those things, then I think you're set up for success in this business, but it always goes back to that. It's like, People who, most people who get into the fitness business, I would say 99.999% want to help people, you know? And it's like, as soon as you start throwing in all the different like business strategies and stuff like that at them right away, and they forget those things immediately, like they forget those things quick, then all of a sudden it turns into just like your, your every other job. It's like, I believe that the fitness business and, and trainers, and I've, there are a lot of amazing trainers out there. Mm. They're not all over Instagram. They're not all over Facebook. They're doing boring mm. ass workouts. And they're just because they're busy working with their clients and giving them everything that they have. If you don't feel like it's a good conversation, like there's something wrong, like on, on someone's party, like, I think it's very easy to to do that, but it does, it takes practice and, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like discourage people if they don't feel like they're, 
good communicators or they don't feel like they have conversations that they enjoy, but there is something that needs to happen between two people and like a certain amount of effort uh, that goes on. So, you know, well, I think everybody, I think everybody is a good communicator. Some people say they're not, it's like, it's just like anything. It takes some practice to it. It's like, if you never wrote anything or you never worked out, you're going to be rusty at it, but everybody can get, you know, better at it. So mm. one of the things with communication that's so interesting is pretty much like everybody talk. there's even people who are, have severe disabilities and they still find communication mm. to talk. Like, it's yeah. like, it's something that we inherently just learn as kids and we just develop it over time. Like that's how, you know, that is a, such a thing that we all have a common bond around. And I think what happens with people who feel they aren't communicators or they don't like communicating is they're so focused on their agenda in their head. It's like, they're trying to force it some way. It's like, if you try and force anything, then you're always worried about, is it on the right direction or not? Even if it's on the right direction, you don't, like you don't know because you're so worried about whether it's on the right direction or not. You know, it's like anybody who's, you know, young, if you're in the dating market or so, and you try and talk to somebody that you're really attracted to, and you're trying to force the conversation and saying, Oh, are they, you know, are they getting this? Are they liking it? Are they vibing me and stuff? Or just go out and just have a conversation with somebody and just smile. And it's like with no agenda and no expectation. And every time you do that, Holy shit, people start just being attracted to you, you know, and you do that with everybody. I mean, that's, that's charisma. That's what's having charisma is about. It's like talking, you know, flirt and joke with everybody, like not just somebody that you're attracted to, but just have that as part of your personality. I think if you do that and you practice that, then that's you're you're a lively person. And then you're just excited about that. And then other people are more connected to you. And I've, I've known coaches who are not the most savvy technical coaches at all. Like they're not the smartest in the room. They don't have every certification in the world. Nobody ever leaves them because they are such good communicators. And every time the person comes in, they're just so excited to work with them. I tell this story. I worked with uh, this woman for ever. She's still to this day, the best trainer I've ever seen in my life. Her name's Barbara. And when I first got and started working she would open the club at 4 a.m. in the morning. She would work till like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, and nobody ever left her book. She had like a 100% retention rate of personal training. If anybody knows the business, that is almost impossible. You pretty much had to either move more than 50 miles away or die to leave Barb's book. Like that's just how it happened. And then when she would so as a manager working with Barb, I loved her because if she needed a client, I'm like, okay, like I knew as a manager, if I sign somebody up, I know that they're going to her, they're in great hands. They're never going to leave. You know, it's like, they're just going to renew over and over again, because every time they came in, she was at the front, she was ready for them. She brought them right in. Like she did not let them out of her sight the entire time she was in a training session. And we think those little things don't mean that much. But those are the things that are huge, like not the greatest trainer in the world. We did FMS and functional training all the time. She wasn't really about that. She would tell mm. you if we were talking right now, it wasn't her huge thing that she jumped into, but nobody ever left her because she mm. made everybody feel like gold. And it's like, if you do that, like who want, whoever wants to leave somebody that makes you feel so good. Damn. That's powerful because like you can you can like be the best person at the world in the world at like coaching a squat. But if you 
don't make that person feel so good in that session like we what we've been talking about and and you don't have that connection it's you're you're not going to be successful so that's that's crazy i love that story and uh shout out barb hope she's you know doing well with whatever she's doing right now that's awesome oh yeah and it and she would come in and it was she was incredibly competent too. make no mistake she knew her stuff yeah yeah inside it out but she had it down if anybody we used to call her the state worker because she like every single time she had the same number of sessions that she booked out, she knew exactly, she ran her personal training like a straight business. Like she wasn't worried about client. They never canceled on her, like anything like they, God forbid they ever canceled on her because she's like, if they, if they missed a bit, like then, and they, she wasn't giving them everything that they had, she would just fire them. She'd just be like, I'm not working with this person anymore. You know, and a lot of young trainers be like, how could you like, you know, letting a client go? Like, you're just trying to get as many clients as possible. If she didn't want to work with you and you weren't giving her everything that she, uh, that she was giving, then she would just be like, no, I'm not working with this person anymore. I would go have mm. to move that person off her book and find somebody else to do it. You are their coach and their trainer. They don't care if you've been here for a day or been here for 20 years and you're the most famous person in the world. Mm. They want your help on that and they trust in you to help. So that's where we get in these lines of people like this person does this and we put a label on this person does this and stuff like that. And we can think like we want to get to these levels and stuff like that. That means absolutely nothing to the person that we're working with. Yeah. It's like, it's like whoever you it's, I, I, for a long time had this thing where I was a RKC instructor. You know, I was in the, I was an SFG instructor and I was like in this group because it's a very tight knit community. There's a big kinship within strong first. And I love the community. I absolutely love so many people that develop incredible friendships from it. But for a while, like I thought like that was who I was. And it's like, yeah, when I actually go back and I've met thousands of people I've done, I, I think I did it actually before. Cause I was working on some marketing stuff. I've done over 28,000 personal training sessions in my career. I could count on one hand, actually probably two fingers, how many people actually asked me for my credentials or my transcripts before working with me. Yeah. They, okay. they worked, they worked with me because I made them feel good. It's because mm. I listened to them because they had a goal and I, showed that I was capable of getting them to this goal. But then once we got into that, that's only the starting point. People don't sign up with you. They say, I'm giving you a chance. And then if you keep giving them that same effort over and over again, then they're going to stay with you over and over again. They don't care if you are the greatest trainer in the world. And if you are freaking killing it and down the line, you'll be like, you know what? I'm moving off this because I'm building this up and I can't do this anymore so I need to move you over. They'll be so happy for you because they, they, you gave them so much and they just want you to keep going and keep expanding and keep building from there. On the other side of, of connecting and communication with people, there's a difference between being proactive and being reactive. So something that I teach my clients is we call it scouting the defense. Okay. So everything that we do for health and fitness plans, you have a training plan or a strength plan that you're following. You have a nutrition and a diet plan that you're doing. You even have accountability and stuff. That's all the offensive side of the football. That's, those are all plans that we have so we can go score a touchdown. Most programs are all geared around offense, but what is defense? Defense is everything in life that is an obstacle that's pulling us back that could prevent us from moving the football down the field and scoring a touchdown. 
life is a professional defense. Okay. It plays really good defense all the time. So what I say when we do scouting the defense is you have two different pieces. You have just your regular coverages that you see. These are the normal things that might get in the way of you doing the things that you want to do this week for your progression. So that could be, you have to work late, you know, for clients, or maybe you woke up and you don't feel good and you're sick. Okay. If you see these things ahead of time as possibilities of defense, you might see now we can come up with a plan of, Oh, if I see this coverage happening, I can make mm. this play and I can still go forward. That's number one. The second is what are the blitzes? You know, the blitz packages are coming where you haven't seen it before. And you got all these things rushing at you at one time. Those are the things that maybe there's a good chance it's not going to happen. Like, you know, for clients I know that are, you know, that have kids and sick, like they call you up in the middle of the day and they're throwing up at school, you know, and you have to grab them and take them home and take care of them. Okay. Unlikely it's going to happen. We hope it doesn't happen, but it still might happen. If that does happen, what can we do? So you still get your training in, or you still follow your nutrition plan, or you still do your writing practices that you're doing for mindset. And it's like, if you just see it a little bit ahead of time, you can make a plan of it. Mm. So you're not, you're not reacting to all of the crazy defensemen coming at you. And mm. even just that split second, anybody who watches the NFL, you know, just a split second extra time for the quarterback can make all the difference between getting sacked or getting the ball out of their hands and possibly still moving the ball forward. So, but the whole point around it is we're taking things that we think we're reacting to, to being proactive. So for you, there's good chances this week that a client is going to text you and they're going to need something in there. What is your plan of attack that you're going to do in there? Do you have office hours where you only check your messages at specific times and get back to them? Do you tell all your clients beforehand, hey, if you need me, this is when I check messages throughout the day. Everything's about the expectations beforehand. So anytime I start with a client, we get all of our expectations of everything out of the way first. This is what I expect from you to do. This is what you expect from me to do. And we call that an upfront contract. So if you're doing that, then they know the rules, then you know the rules, then you got, okay, that's the first defense. You've got that down. Now you can go over the blitzes and work it there. But the best of the best people that I've talked to and I've communicated with and seen be ultra successful is they know a plan for everything. They take themselves out of reactive positions as much as possible and make things proactive. So anybody out there listening, if you have never read the book before by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that is an absolute must for anybody who gets into business that I you know, think is uh, getting in the first rule and first habit of that is be proactive. And if you do that, everything else is going to fall into place.